0: Coming
1: up on this week's WebCast Policies are not clear enough about what you can and cannot do within these communication channels. What's acceptable and what's not. And, and, I, and I, as I say, to agree with Sean, like these outright prohibitions, you know, it's not proven to be a defendable position
2: for compliance practitioners where we are and where we will continue to be, and it's just gonna get worse with the proliferation of of different communications media, is I won't know I've satisfied my obligations to my regulator or to my customers until the FCA decides.
0: Uh, I think it's a responsibility of compliance teams. Go find out what is out there to help you with these new forms of communication.
3: What MarketWatch 89 reads the same as 69, you know get ready for some really big fines we, because we get, we we got to we got to actually work out how, how do we make this system work not to, not the particular risk controls but as as a system how does regtech help
0: Welcome to Regcast
3: Regcast Shining a light on challenges and opportunities for digital compliance Hello and welcome to Regcast This is episode 7 of season 2 and it's the 24th of May, and we're looking at market abuse in the latest with the RegTech plans. I'm PJ D. Jim Marino, CEO and founder of JWG, and we've been doing a lot of research getting ready for our June seminar. And we're here to talk about some of that, but also get the latest on what's just come out from the FCA with the, the Market Watch 69 on market abuse. And this conversation goes back a while, uh, but in some respects, it's totally new. And what I mean by that is that communications as a as a topic have it, always been broken into voice electronic communications and then need to be married up with the trading activity and really for all of that monitoring cross a number of different risk disciplines they cover uh, Aml they, they co- cover uh, transaction monitoring uh, fraud a whole bunch of things um, and what recently that we, we've we've been able we can't rely on a world where all the communication channels are within the firewall of a firm you know the world's moved beyond that with lots of different communication platforms out there and there's some rev- level of risk in having employees out there on them uh recent fines for use of whatsapp from jp morgan over 100 million and 250 hours of a roaring kitty out on youtube cost mass mutual 4 million uh, you know, these have these, started to wake people up uh, in, a, in a post-pandemic work-from-home world where we recognize there are a lot of these risks to get under control. And the, the MarketWatch69 commentary wasn't very direct, but it kind of read as being a bit critical of the industry. It talked about poor risk frameworks, it talked about inability to marry AML with trade surveillance, talked about policy and procedure gaps, outsourcing problems, all all the usual things that come with a difficult compliance area like this. So with these pressures from the the industry and the the customers and, and the way things are moving right now, we wanted to step back and look at some of these fundamental questions of what our market practice and how are we meant to be deploying some of this technology most importantly, Who's responsible for listening to what? And and, and where's the business case and and sifting through all these communications and finding those needles in the haystack? So who better to help us with that than a communications expert, a compliance expert, and a lawyer? So Sam, can you please introduce yourself first for the audience?
2: Thank you, PJ. Uh, I am Sam Tyfield. I am a partner at a Law Firm Shoesmiths. And uh, I deal day in, day out with um, issues such as those that we're discussing here um, and advise clients on the actual practical implementation of the rules and how to interpret what's coming down the pipe.
3: And no stranger to Redcast, but welcome back to season two. Thank you very much. Sean, please introduce yourself for the audience.
0: I'm, my name's Sean Hurst, and I work for Smash. We're a software company that deals with all things to do with communications, capture, and compliance, as well as surveillance. And I'm a regulatory expert, as well as a data privacy expert, and a bit of a subject matter expert, a lot of expert expertise there. Uh, and, I, and I help out with some of our larger clients, giving advice uh, around some of the challenges that you face today.
3: Thank you. And last but not least, Richard, who again is no stranger to Redcast, bring us up to speed. What your latest job is?
1: Yep. thank you, PJ. Richard Bain. I'm a compliance practitioner uh, for State Street, uh, and I lead our enterprise-wide conduct surveillance program.
3: Perfect. So the first question we wanted to tackle here uh, really gets back to regulatory best practice and and if regulators don't insist on it you know what is it that the industry needs to go ahead and work on uh, Sean I wanted to come to you first can you tell us a little bit about what's the market practice at the moment what's what tell us about the story of, of what does it take to monitor all the different communication channels and, and what does that feel like today
0: well it's <laughs> it's a tough job. I don't envy those that uh, are on the receiving end of this, uh, the compliance practitioners. Uh, Richard has has a tough job, but things over the last couple of years have obviously changed, uh, but it's been changing long before that. The way that we communicate is evolving constantly and just the sheer number of channels uh, of, of communication that are out there is increasing. I wouldn't say exponentially, but it's increasing really, really quickly. Uh, we all know about what's going on at the moment with WhatsApp. There's a few court cases out there, and we're going to hear a lot more about that as well. There's going to be a lot more investigations around the use of WhatsApp in the regulated spaces. And if that comes down to this, you know, and it's quite interesting to be calling it this, but the decentralized forms of communication. I worked in the the banking industry for many, many years where where things like this were never actually a concern. And all we had to do was monitor our internal communications, things like email, things like, you know, back in the day, link and uh, some other chat modalities that we had. That was challenging enough. But now when you bring it out to these decentralized forms of communication like WhatsApp, WeChat, Telegram, or even some of the social media channels that we can use, it creates a lot of challenges. But if we focus on things like WhatsApp, there's there's a lot of there's a lot of issues that I see when it comes to this. When when I'm having conversations with some of our clients and we're talking about the potential risk of WhatsApp and not capturing it, there are quite a few of them that still say, Well, we tell our traders, we tell our staff not to use WhatsApp for business-related communications. We have that in policy and we're done. That's doesn't work anymore, right? People are going to use those forms of communication. And that might be down to what, what your client might be wanting to do that your client might not want to work with email, or other official forms of communication that you allow. Their, their preferred form of communication is WhatsApp. And when you're dealing with a client that might be highly demanding, uh, bringing in a lot of money for your company, then they do have some leeway in saying kind of the ways that they would like to communicate so so the policies aren't keeping
3: up with the with the market practice
0: no i, I don't i don't think they're enough anymore policies they still have their place but i don't think it's enough we as we can see right uh, hsbc under investigation this year we have jp morgan with some massive fines there were policies in place there i'm sure but they're still going to get fined. It's not, it's not an excuse. The regulator is not going to look at that as an, an excuse for any of the wrongdoing that might be happening. You know, the, the situation that we're seeing at the moment, that, that, have, that you know, w- what's been presented to us over the last few months with the conflict in Ukraine uh, with Russia. We've seen some sanctions that we've never seen, you know, to the extent of sanctions. We, we haven't seen this before, at least in my lifetime. And this is, this is quite a good example of where the risks might lie. You might have some, a client that you've been dealing with for the last 20 years. Let's say I'm a trader. I have a client that is Russian, and he happens to be a close friend as well. You develop these relationships. When these sanctions come in place, there's obviously a sanctions list, and the official forms of communication, you get cut off. Uh, the, the ability to trade, et cetera, with these individuals gets cut off. But that doesn't stop you having this friendship with this individual and potentially still giving financial advice, which is, is quite a risk, right? And the risk really comes when you're not maybe your company's made a decision. you're not allowed to communicate with WhatsApp. You've made that absolutely clear, but you still are doing this. You might not get found out individually. but what happens if that individual, the Russian you know uh, client of yours, Gets stopped at an airport on the way somewhere, and his phone gets confiscated. And on that phone, there's a bunch of communication that gets discovered with a banker that works for Bank X. That puts you in a very sticky situation and it suddenly exposes, exposes your company to a lot of risk and a lot of you know, financial uh, penalties. So, so
3: some, so some of the invasive nature of the, of the, the sanctions will will force additional inspection of what has happened outside the firm's firewall.
0: I think so, and and it's uh, and that's that's a hypothetical that I've put in front of you, but it's something mm-hmm. to think about. And it's, you know, even even if there wasn't even if there wasn't the ability for the regulator to actually fine the company, the the bank there is always the the point that it's going to get into the press, there is going to be reputational risk uh, at at play. And I just think, with companies deciding not to capture elements like WhatsApp, you know, maybe it's a financial reason, maybe it's just a difficulty, right? They don't want to have this invasive, uh, you know, technology in there, because it's your personal communications that's not necessarily an excuse anymore. There needs to be a way around this. You need to try and think about these forms of communication as they're here to stay. Your customers are going to want to talk in this specific way. They might want to use WhatsApp. They might want to use something else. WeChat is the biggest communications platform in Asia. Maybe that's the one that you need to think about if you have a lot of clients in Asia. But I I think we're getting to the point where where companies are starting to embrace these technologies, the ability to capture these technologies. And they're realizing it's not just about the compliance piece, right? It's not just about the fact that, well, we've got to keep control of these these communication channels. But it's also a case of, well, you're enabling your potential clients to communicate the way that they want to. It might be seen as a value add for the way that you're talking with these individuals.
3: Yeah, and I think therein lies the rub. And Sam, you've been around this horn a number of times, but there's also employee and the personal rights of the of the individual challenge here as well, right? And there, you know, at the end end of the day, you know, there there's all kinds of pressures from the information commissioners and and, and all the other um, agencies out there to want to protect people data. You know they, they want to make sure that this stuff is isn't isn't being abused and that isn't out there for, for you know untoward purposes. And part of which could be business driven, right? And that's a really sticky area. So if you've got a, the if you've got to protect the customer and you've got to kind of accelerate the alpha of the franchise, how how do you start looking at this particular conundrum?
2: Well, I think it's important to say from the get go that it's not just pressure from the the UK Information Commissioner or or, uh, in the EU under GDPR or um, anyone else forcing firms and employers uh, to be very circumspect about the data they seek from their staff members. It is also the firms are very reluctant to cross that Rubicon into a, 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 a dystopian reality where nothing that their employees and staff members do is off limits. And firms genuinely don't want to, to to be that intrusive on their staff members' lives. And I think it's it that that's an important Thing for everyone to recognise here. It's not that we're being the industry is being held back from getting all of this stuff from its staff members. It genuinely doesn't want it. It wants people to have a social life, and the way there are differing approaches. Sean mentioned uh, right off the bat that uh, there are firms which say it's against policy, it's against rules to use this kind of social medium. Therefore. So we we don't need to monitor it because if they found out, um, it's gross misconduct, and we can kind of fingers crossed hope and tr- trust them that they're not going to want that to happen to them. That's that is one approach. Um, the other approach, of course, is that you say to us to a staff member, don't use WhatsApp um, or don't use Telegram. Um, if you do use them, then I'm going to have the right to take a look at them to take a look at your use. Um, that's kind of fair enough. Um, because I as a staff member know that I shouldn't be doing this. But if I do, then I have to disclose it to my compliance or surveillance monitoring team. And then whatever is on there kind of is fair game. And I've 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 taken this, the 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 decision myself that um, whatever I put on these social media platforms or on these uh, decentralized communication uh, platforms, I don't regard as private enough that um, somebody else shouldn't have access. That's a decision I I I have taken. Um, but still, I think firms need some encouragement to be able to do that. And or, or a business reason, a justifiable business reason for, 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 for wanting that access. And, you know, I, I'm not a trader. I'm I'm not in the generation of alpha and uh, but but if in, in my naive approach to this, it's, it seems a truism that if these monitoring data could have some positive p and impact, then it makes, it makes sense to monitor them. Um, or, or in fact, that they, they have other compliance uh, benefits um, you could you, you could monitor staff members mental health which is important given the fact that we're all working from home slightly more um, you know, if your staff member lives somewhere like the west country where it's cold and it rains and you can't go out for 23 hours a day for example you know you're going to be concerned about their mental health um, if, if if firms could focus on that kind of thing then the, the the scope for monitoring opens, opens up a little bit. But I think that's, I, I think that's, that, that's what we're going to have to face as an industry increasingly.
3: There's some fantastic points there, Richard, I'd like to kind of draw you in here because you're expert at decoding regulatory statements and, and Market Watch sixty nine, I, I must say, was a bit obtuse for me. When you read it, what kind of implications do you take away from that in terms of what what you can and, and can't do in this space?
1: Yeah, so so for me, I'm going to talk about two two components of of Market Watch sixty nine. Um, the first is fundamentals. The second is policy, because that that's that plus some of the. I think some of the recent finds we're seeing coming out from global regulators sort of to, leads me to a, a sort of policy conversation. Um, so in terms of Market Watch uh, Six Nine, I think anyone who is regularly following Market Watch commentary, or like me as a compliance uh, practitioner, been involved in examinations, etc., I'm not sure I would have read that and said there's nothing in there that I am not already aware of as a focus of our regulators particularly the SCA in this particular instance. I think the message, if there's one that i take from it, is surveillance uh, and compliance practitioners must go back to the fundamentals here. And the fundamentals for me of any compliance or surveillance program are risk identification, risk assessment, risk monitoring, and risk reporting. Now, if i just touch on, 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 on three of those um, in terms of risk identification, you have to have a risk identification process that takes into, fa- into consideration factors such as the products, the services, the business model you have, the asset classes you're exposed to, the clients you're exposed to, etc. And that should really form part of that risk identification uh, analysis that you're going to do and it should ultimately be downstream into how you structure your risk assessment uh, so it's granular enough to assess against those various risks One thing I'd say about risk assessment as well is that it should drive the monitoring capability that you stand up and it should drive the evolution of that monitoring capability so if you have a risk assessment that isn't in one way or shape or form, impacting your monitoring capability on a routine basis and therefore driving changes in that monitoring capability, the reality is that you've probably got a disconnect between the quality of risk, risk assessment that you ought to have in place. When it comes to risk monitoring, I want to talk about risk monitoring in sort of two component parts. Pure, we need to monitor for market abuse, market conduct risks, but we also need to be really focused on the performance monitoring, of the surveillance capability itself? Is it mitigating the risk that's set out that's designed to do? Is it generating false positives? Are we using analytic mechanisms and statistical analytics to sort of determine whether or not thresholds and parameters are appropriately set based on the available data that we have to we have at our, our disposal? So I think for me, really actually, this is all about getting back to those fundamental pillars and building a a fit for purpose surveillance capability and not necessarily rushing to complexity, but actually getting the basics right. If I think about fines and I think about what we've seen come out from JP Morgan with the WhatsApp issue, WhatsApp issue, if I think about, even if I go back to the now infamous uh, uh, Mutual Life and Roaring Kitty case um, uh, that revolved around GameStop, um, and I think actually Mark Market 69 calls this out specifically, um, that the regulator's view is that policies do not go far enough. Now, as a compliance practitioner, I understand the need to try and keep policies at, uh, at a high level, uh, where there are principles based policies. However, I think when I think about the decentralized communications environment today and how, how do you address that in policy, I would suggest that um, the policy must do the following things. It must define your approved communications channels, and within those communi- approved communications channels, your employees have open architecture over the conversations that they want to have with clients, third parties, employees, etc. It should also, def- you know, specify what are not approved communication channels to the extent that, you know, you know, for instance, WhatsApp is one you could possibly call out. I mean, it's quite commonly you know, prohibited for use. But I actually tend to agree with Sean, and I'd say that outright prohibitions do not solve the surveillance problem, because often once you prohibit it, you make a decision not to monitor it. And actually, I think where policies need to go deeper there for those non-approved systems, it's not outright prohibit, right, but actually say within these non-approved communication systems, these are the things you can do. And these are the things you cannot do or you must not do. And it gives employees informed choices about, okay, I can perhaps use WhatsApp to communicate about the next meeting that we've got coming up. But if a client wants to engage me on a particular transaction, I need to move that out of that domain and have that communication somewhere else. So it's about providing more granular guidance about what, what is acceptable and what isn't acceptable within those non-approved channels.
3: And, and Richard, so how, how far away are we from that today? I mean, it gives a sense of where the gap is for the what you're describing versus a you know, typical policy.
1: Yeah, I mean, I have to say, when I speak to practitioners um, in my industry, very few policies or procedures or standards or additional guidance is out there goes to that level. There seems to be a real reluctance within uh, you know practitioner space to actually get into the granularity of that debate, I, I, and I would suggest that you know the the kitty case and the JP Morgan case were real good examples where you know policies are not clear enough about what you can and cannot do within these communication channels what's acceptable and what's not and and i and I, I say to i agree with Sean like these outright prohibitions you know it's not proven to be a defendable position for compliance practitioners so okay to...
3: But so, what's keeping us then from having a you know a standard or a, you know common practice guide of some 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 description?
1: Um, I, I don't know. I mean, actually, maybe actually, you know, the, the, there's a reluctance or a, or a over reliance on compliance practitioners to look at regulators to provide that guidance. But I think what regulators are saying is you need to you need to make those determinations based on your business operations, right? So there are some. In some uh, some yeah. where you know WhatsApp, and there are locations for instance where WhatsApp is a effective communication, and there are places where it's not, etc. So actually, I think you have to make those decisions within the context of you know your business operating model and your organisational model, and um, and it's a difficult, it's a really difficult um, you know apple to slice. I think, and that maybe where where compliance practitioners are reluctant to go that far. Um, well, I think
2: that's the- an important point. Richard, because going back to 2016-17, when MiFID II sought to introduce a whole load of additional reporting fields for um, execution and, and, and investment decisions, there was a, a, a conflict between that obligation and GDPR. And so there was a lot of talk internally and with, with the regulators about how to get a, how, how to, to square that particular circle. And in fairness to the compliance community, I think what is being asked of it by the regulators is difficult for them to manage in an HR context. Like Mark is not exactly on point, but it's MarketWatch sixty nine. There was a point. In, at the end of Market Watch 69, when it talks about suspicious transaction order reports, where it says what we want you to do potentially is to take disciplinary action against somebody who um, is the subject of a suspicious transaction order report, but without letting them know why. And I, I if, if as a compliance professional, I would really appreciate some guidance as to how that tipped over through my disciplinary uh, process into the HR relationship that I have with them, or what if I'm going to tread over that line and potentially wrongfully or unfairly dismiss somebody or you know, bring um, an employment relationship to a close at my, at my fault, I'd like to know that I'm doing that because my regulator wanted me to, or told me to. See, so, so, so I, there, there definitely is an appropriate place for further guidance on this kind of this kind of approach. And I'll, I'll, I'll go further as well, which is a sort of bugbear of mine and has been fit for 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 years, is guidance issued by regulator also gives you also gives the practitioner a guidance on thresholds and limits and ha- if I if I do this have I done enough and what the massive cynic in me says is that what we where we are and where we will continue to be and it's just going to get worse with the proliferation of of different communications media is I won't know I've satisfied my obligations to my regulator or to my customers until the FCA decides and the FCA can decide that I have but in the same almost identical circumstances you haven't
3: yeah and, and I guess that yeah it, it's so we, we can know what bad looks like Retrospectively, but we have no forward view what good is. And I guess Sean, you know, you from a technology point of view, there's so many good things you you could be doing with with this technology. Do you do you have a good sense of how you would lay out the you know the framework for thinking about those limits and and and, and themes that Sam was talking about?
0: Yeah, I can talk primarily from the communications perspective, which is 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 a minefield for for a lot of companies. Uh, But I think it is also relevant for a lot of the other uh, space, you know, a lot of the other areas of compliance as well. You know, there's, things have moved on, right? Uh, Like I mentioned before, I I worked in banking for a long time. I came through the Dodd-Frank phase, MIFID 1 and MIFID 2. And, you know, the, the requirements just keep changing and adding up and piling up. Uh, a lot of the software that has been implemented was implemented primarily back in the day of Dodd-Frank, right? Because of Dodd-Frank. Uh, the problem is people are still using those software as a lot of legacy software. It was a very different world back in 2004, 2005, as it is today, right? Uh, things are very, very different. And these. You know, the the front end platforms that people are using, the the way that people are communicating, it's a very different thing. But a lot of companies are still trying to capture that information and process that information, surveil against it, comply against it, using platforms that were built during the days of email, right, when email was king. And I think what people need to do, what what good looks like today is embrace new technology. Forget embrace, just, just find out what is available right? We're all keen to, to try the new tools out there. We're all keen to, to use WhatsApp and Telegram. Well, go find out. Uh, I think it's a responsibility of compliance teams to go, go find out what is out there to help you with these new forms of communication. You know, when we look back, and and I'm pretty sure everyone's sick of talking about the pandemic, but when we look at the beginning of the pandemic, when people started working from home, and you look at companies like Zoom and how they responded so quickly to these increased needs that that people had working from home, I mean, we're talking not not, not hundreds of percent, we're talking thousands of percent increase in the amount of, of usage of these platforms. Now, if this was even five years ago, I, I argue that we would have seen a big problem happening during that phase. But with the scalable architectures that are out there, the scalable platforms that are out there, the cloud technologies, uh, you know, the robust services that companies like Zoom, Microsoft uh, are able to provide, they were able to scale up so quickly. There's no way you're gonna do that with legacy platforms that people are still using inside their banks right, or inside their companies. So have a look what's out there. You know, for example, Smosh, we're a company that is cloud first, right? We're using public cloud for the majority of what we do. It allows us to scale, you know, near infinitely. And, you know, there's that confidence level that it doesn't matter. If, if you're bringing on five new communication channels today that you need to not only capture, but also surveil against, uh, do some supervision against. You know, you bring in those five channels and you start pumping data through there. We're confident that's going to work, but we're also confident in how it's going to work in five years time, in 10 years time, because of the way these platforms are designed. So have a look what's out there. Uh, Don't say no, you know, like Richard is saying, and, you know, I think we're both in in agreement there. Policy is, is, you can't just say no, right? You can't just say no, you can't use these things. But you also can't say, hey, yeah, use what you want, right? (laughs) You can't go that way. There has to be a middle ground. And creating the least resistance is the way to go, right? Creating creating an instance where you say, "Hey, we've got this new technology. We can capture these five new communication channels." You know, if it's in the list of communication channels that you'd like to speak to your customer in, then perfect. The, the, you know, you're a for away and you you go for it, and you can you can carry on doing what you need to do. It's going to be completely uh, captured, regulated, and you know, if there happens to be a channel that is not captured today you provided five modern forms of communication that might be an, a decent alternative for your client, right? Yeah. So they're and not forced to go down a route that they don't really wanna go down.
3: Yeah, and I, I guess I, what I hear you saying, Sean, is put, put, put the technology out there, get the platform ready to be able to adapt to what the needs are. But again, in my 17 years of dealing with these kind of questions, I only see things move when there's an immediate driver and there's some funding. So, Richard, I want to come to you on this and ask you about sanctions, because really six months ago, we weren't even talking about them. But, you know, what is there something there in this AML agenda that helps unlock some of this replatforming?
1: I think there is. I mean, uh, it, it doesn't really matter whether you're talking about sanctions, AML, although sanctions is the, the hot topic today, right, because of, you know, the UK conflict, of course, Um, and, so, you know, compliance organisations have really had to mobilise around making sure that they're they're ready to uh, comply with those requirements. And that has taken up a significant amount of time, resource and effort to do that. Um, Actually, if I look at where uh, budget um, has been spent by most um, financial institutions, AML seems to be where the bulk of that is going um, uh, as we stand here today. Um, And uh, actually, I think a lot of that's been driven by um uh, if I look at regulators' examination priorities, um they are very focused on money laundering, terrorists, financing, sanctions, etc. Um, and so uh there has been certainly a sort of like two to five year shift where that has, you know, become the predominant compliance focus. But actually if I drill that back into market conduct risk or market abuse, because that's what we're here to talk about. Um uh, I'd say within uh those examination priorities, market abuse in capital markets is a predominant risk for regulators. And I think that actually creates a connectivity between your market abuse surveillance program and your AML, potentially your sanctions program as well. Uh which sit within that, typically sit within that financial crime infrastructure. Now, resources limited, budgets are you know going, you know, um Uh, way beyond what we expected. Alert false positives are increasing, which is driving increased headcount. I actually think the way to optimise and the way to scale your surveillance capability within a a major financial issue today is actually to look at how you build optimisation and scalability across that financial crime ecosystem and not just looking at these capabilities, uh, sorry, these risks, capabilities and technology and infrastructure stacks as a an AML, a sanctions, a market conduct risk, and actually start to look at these as actually uh, a single suite of financial crime risks where actually you can build out infrastructure that's going to span all of those risks holistically. Um, uh, and, you know, I think the reality is is that, you know, if you're building one data lake rather than many data lakes for different risk if you're building one transaction monitoring capability rather than multiple transaction monitoring capabilities for, you know for, for for uh different ta- tax taxonomies I think you are going to find it's more scalable, it's easier to operate, it's more cost efficient, and the savings that you make in, in, in the optimization of that um can be reinvested in addressing some of the other issues that are inevitably are going to come like high volumes of false positives, etc. Um I do I do want to just, just briefly touch on a point also that that um uh that Sean Sean and uh, Sam make. Regulators do not want to put out high quality specific guidance about parameters that firms should be using for the calibration of their their surveillance activity. And the reason for that is they don't want concentration risk. Um, For me, I actually think calibration of those programs needs to be tied to um, input and output performance monitoring. And as compliance professionals, you need to be set up to do that. You need to be Building your surveillance capability around data inputs and ana- analysis of those data inputs that's going in and the outputs coming out. The example of that, um, you know, if you're looking at price thresholds or average daily trading volume thresholds or um, market volatility thresholds to apply to those models, those thresholds in your domain might be different than they are in another domain. So do the ana- do the analysis, build your thresholds and your parameters two domain specifics and calibrate them and evaluate them on an ongoing basis so that the, you should be able to show demonstration that they've changed and they've evolved over time. They haven't remained static for two to five years because actually as market as, as market trends change, you know, those, those, those important data points that are calibrated within your surveillance capability will change also. So, and actually I think that's easier to do within a larger infrastructure, DJ, to come back to the, the original point, right? Yeah. Um, that's not a easy task. So, building in expertise to do that across a financial compliance ecosystem is far easier than doing it across your individual risk, um, uh, risk risk pillars if you like.
3: Thank you, Richard. I'm going to take that as your final statement because we're at we're actually a bit over time. But Sam, can I come to you just for your final thoughts around the 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 various. Edges of this problem and, and where you where you think individual firms should be trying to move in
2: 2022. Uh, i have to say, first of all, that I really agree with with Richard's final comments. But I, my, my, my take on it is slightly different, that I think compliance and surveillance and monitoring. Should be working much more hand in glove, uh, or expect to work much more hand in glove in the future with front and middle office um, and the technologists. Uh, Because to understand the business that you're surveilling, the risks that you need to ID and assess, and then monitor for is a uh, is an enterprise initiative. And that's what I think firms need to become much more more joined up. I, Whilst I do agree with Richard completely, pick financial crime or AML as the thing that you're looking at and everything else flowing down from there. I think, I think we, everything is going to have to be looked at at a much more enterprise level, which comes with its own challenges. Um, again, back to MarketWatch69 and its references to the nefarious involvement of the front office in these kind of activities, um, so it comes with its own challenges, but I think it's it's a, a priority. I think it's inevitable, and I think on balance, it's a good it's a good thing.
3: Thank you, Sam and uh, Sean. I'm going to take your final statement because it was so eloquently stated about the need to look at this new technology. And I'll I'll make my my assessment here, which is we we've got a long way to go to make this area safe for compliance professionals. There's a lot of risk in just hoping that retrospectively somebody figures out what you're doing was good enough. Um, and, and there is a you know a, a big need in the industry to sort out the parameters of this guidance. Not not to the point where you can get concentration risk from everybody looking at the same thing, but even just what are those inputs and outputs? And, and how do you think about the scope of the problem and in the in the drivers? I think, you know, this the, the risk frameworks have become so siloed and the technology solutions so specific that to bring that conversation up we, we need better guidance and to get there we need you know more collaborative action from firms and, and to get the regulators at the table. If I have to read another obtuse set of guidance like the, uh, uh, the uh, Market watch 69, if what Watch 89 reads the same as 69, you know get ready for some really big fines. Because we can we we gotta we gotta actually work out how how do we make this system work, not to, not the particular risk controls, but as as a system, how does RegTech tech help you know control the, this this enormous set of risks, and and that's the that's the key thing we want to focus on on the 23rd of June, which you should get in your calendars now and make sure you're make sure you're online here. Much more from uh, the speakers here today, uh, and there'll be tons more information to follow up on. So I highly recommend you guys getting on board the uh, broader half-day seminar format that that we have. And I very much look forward to returning to some of these topics uh, soon, especially when we have uh, new market abuse uh, regulation and, uh, dare I say it, MIFID three. Thanks all, thank you all very much for for digging in here and, and we'll look forward to catching up again soon.
0: You can download the podcast via Spotify, Apple, and Google. But also I'd encourage people to come to the JWG website, which as hopefully you will know is jwg-it.eu. Go to the Intelligence Hub and create your bespoke library. This is Redcast.
3: Shining a light, challenges and opportunities for digital compliance.